0: Hi, this week I am bringing you part two in the SciComm special titled The Role of Academics and Scientific Organizations in the Fight Against COVID-19. In the second part of our conversation, I discussed with Mónica Moher, Joana Lobo and Adriana Bankston about how to connect with your audience during the COVID-19 crisis and about what their views are on how the scientific community as a whole can engage in this conversation at the community level and at the government and policy level. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendes, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. These last few weeks, I've seen the surfacing of a host of fake news, misinformed statements by government leaders, uh, conspiracy theories that have fostered movements of uh, COVID skepticism and resistance to health and safety guidelines. And one of the things, of course, is to... Make sure that uh, the the news, the the right news, the the true news, are out there and and have the spotlight. Uh, but there's also the question of uh, bringing the message to the public in a language uh, and in a way that talks to them, right, and that will reach them emo- intellectually and emotionally, and that, that will make make them act upon what they heard. Uh, Monica, the question is for you. Based on your experience on the ground. Um, and already you've already alluded to it a little bit because you said that the person who's, who's governing the role is escaping me, but that he was making a statement that was totally not science-based. But the question is, how well has the scientific community been able to push back against misinformation that's been surfacing about the coronavirus and COVID-19? And um, given the problems you've identified and you're dealing with in Puerto Rico, how can scientists develop and deploy culturally appropriate solutions in this context?
1: In, in Puerto Rico, the scientific community has been incredibly active and engaged in in communicating, um, you know, the, the science and, and the implications in different sectors of society of, of COVID-19. Um, you know, we, we're trying our best to address misinformation, um, but, you know, it's it, I can't compete with the secretary of health was the person you're thinking about, you know, his, his platform is way bigger than mine. Um, and, and so there, while we're, we're doing our best, you know, I think in terms of his, his, um, you know, the, the expressions and the comments he made the, the damage is done, you know, once you, that once misinformation is out there, is it's hard to combat because people become familiar with it. And so, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to do. Um, however, we've been very active. Um, I will say I have been really encouraged by the visibility that, that scientists uh, in, in Puerto Rico, um, you know, that's my experience is predominantly in Puerto Rico, that um, scientists have. Um, I've, you know, I never thought I would hear a government official talk about PCRs um, pretty much every day. Um, you know, I'm talking about PCRs multiple times a day with, with, in, in the media. And so I think there are some encouraging signs and opportunities in terms of the visibility of scientists, in terms of people want to hear from scientists. You know, in Puerto Rico, I mentioned there is a lack of credibility in, in the government. And although, you know, we don't really have surveys that tell us you know, pe- the, the population in Puerto Rico trusts in science. This is where the trust stands. Like in the United States, there are regular surveys that measure trust on, on scientists. We don't have that in, in Puerto Rico. Um, but from my experience, people trust scientists. They want to hear from them. They believe that scientists have their best interest in, in mind. I've certainly been seeing a, an increased interest from the media. And so one of the approaches that we've taken with Ciencia Puerto Rico, we're a digital platform. um, And so we're we're using all of the digital tools that we have at our disposal. We're collaborating with print newspapers. We're collaborating with um, TV, with uh, AM radio stations, and Puerto Rico radio and TV and print newspapers are still heavily uh, read and and watch and listen by the population. And so we're using different platforms to engage different types of the population. Um, our, Our core approach has always been to make science culturally relevant. Um, so, you know, use messengers that look like people, sound like people, sound like their audience so that people can see themselves reflected in these scientists to see that, you know, we're just regular Puerto Ricans like them. Um, but also to use the, the lingo, the popular culture references so that people, um, can really grasp how things are relevant. Why, why, why the things that we're telling, you know, why does wearing masks, like, what is that? Why does that is that important? Um, so, you know, I think when looking at at other places and, and scientists trying to engage with their own communities, you know, thinking about how do I meet people where they are? How do I connect uh, the science, the concepts that and and the importance of those concepts that you're trying to convey? How do you connect that with the reality of people with the things? That people care about, with their their values, with their beliefs, um, you know, how do I use that to engage them in a conversation? Um, that's going to be really important.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's really important. It must be quite challenging. Uh, and actually, adjusting the messaging to different publics and different cultures. This brings me to a question, which is uh, adjusting the vocabulary, the the messenger, like you were saying, uh, this counterweight or this balance between. Packaging the messaging well for, for different publics, bring, having the right messengers. And that's an, a very interesting point. A person that looks like them, I, I hadn't thought of that before. And that does the other thing that I kind of alluded to before, which is bringing up the scientific literacy of, of the population at large. And the question is, and I, I kind of want to send the question to Joanna and, and Monica, are these two separate issues and what role can the scientific community play play in either one because i feel that they are but i would really like to have your uh, your opinion
2: I was still stuck with with what Monica said because, uh, well, the work that we we have been doing in in the past few years, it's been much of that and I was discussing science communication in Portugal with other colleagues just last week and we talked about that. There's the value of proximity. You cannot change mentalities if people feel that the scientists are over there and I am over here, you know. People want to listen to scientists but then there's this problem that scientists are kind of, they speak weird they don't speak the same they don't use the same words as we do so as science communicator one of the things that we have been working on is on making them use this uh, different set of words so that people can relate to them and also one of the most important things is that you never ever wear a lab coat you wear your street clothes when you go talk to people you don't take your lab coat because that immediately creates a distance and then and that's the stereotype you know, so coming back to your question, I, I really wanted to add this because this is really important to do effective science communication. Is working on proximity, and that's that's uh, the the clothes you wear, the words you use, the language you use, the way you frame your science. So you really need to reset that that uh, that those tools, and that makes all the difference between people actually hearing you or just saying, "I'm doing this because they said so," or I really understood what he said. It's not I'm not just trusting my life because he's a scientist, he or she is a scientist, but because I I understood it spoke to me and I can relate to that. And this is very important, not the authority argument, but the empathy argument. This is super important and the work you are doing in Puerto rico with the using spanish the, the many times when i when i give classes to scientists to help them engage better language it's completely different if i have to do if i can do the course in portuguese or i have to do it in english because i have foreigners because people are doing their phds over here and it's completely different you you, you all the body language changes and the, the way you, you contextualize your, your, your science, if you're talking your mother language or you're talking in English, it's completely different. And it's very interesting to, to see that happening. So I really think the work you're doing in Puerto Rico is super, super important and using the language. Sorry, David, I lost your question because I really wanted to react to
0: this you make a really good point and and i i can only imagine because monica was talking about running a, an ironman every day and i'm i'm sure that this groundwork must be very very taxing and eventually very rewarding but right now it must be tiring for sure <laughs> because this oh, is yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the question the question was uh changing the uh, adapting the messaging versus bringing up the scientific literacy
2: yeah, that's 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 a huge challenge because of course there's the question of the language and the empathy, but you, you have to be very clear on this word means this and not something else. So we have to find an equilibrium, you know. So it's it's um sometimes when I'm coaching a scientist on how he or she can talk about that to the to the generaliness, I see well, can we say that in a different way? And they say, no, I really need to use this word. And I say, okay, you use that word, but you explain what it means because otherwise people will not get it because there are so many words that we use in, I'm talking general words now, like risk. People listen to risk and they think of danger. When scientists talk about risk, we are talking about probabilities, so sometimes just framing it differently is uh, is uh, if we're thinking about if we talk about theories people think it's just an idea and many times theories are proven <laughs> like the theory of evolution okay uh, so we, we, we have to remember sometimes we, we the words we use have different meanings for the people that are listening to us but other times we really need to use those words like if I'm talking about mitochondria I have to use the word mitochondria but then I have to explain what a mitochondria is and then i can continue using it and sometimes i can continue to say mitochondria comma the the organelle inside the cell that gives me energy you know so yeah it's challenging it's challenging it's challenging
0: mm-hmm. monica do you have uh, an, an idea of how things are going in terms of uh, education basic education uh, you know from kindergarten to uh, to uh, you know in in Puerto Rico in terms of scientific literacy i know there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, accent that is put that's being put on uh, steam you know uh, and, and stem how are things uh, you know down in, in in Puerto Rico going in that sense what's what's the next generation going to look like when something like uh, covid hits uh, 30 years from now
1: Um, I don't know. (laughs) Um, you know, one thing I wanted to add to what Shwana was saying is, um, when you're communicating, your audience is always, you always have to center your audience. It's never about you as a communicator It's always about your audience. So you always have to be begin from a place of respect and empathy for that audience. So when you're thinking about what are the words that I'm going to choose, you don't have, you, you shouldn't think about, um, you know, what is it that I want to say is, why does this matter to my audience? How do I frame it? How do I present it in a way that they're going to be able to understand it, to use that information? You know, you, you can have different objectives, but it's really, really important to start from a place of respect, you should never underestimate the intelligence of your audience, but you should never overestimate how much they know about a subject. I mean, and that is true for scientists too. I'm a neurobiologist by training. And if I have a physicist who starts talking to me as if they were talking to a colleague, they're going to, I'm not going to get it. Um, I I don't understand the language. I don't understand the jargon. Um, And so that's something that I wanted to mention. In terms of of literacy and education in Puerto Rico, I mean we're, we're not really fair and great i don't I don't remember the numbers from the top of my head, but in terms of proficiency levels in, in science and, and mathematics, which is what's usually measured we're, we're not doing great and um, you know one of the areas in which ciencia Puerto Rico has been focusing on has been and how do we improve um, scientific education. How do we improve scientific literacy by bringing the process of science to the classrooms? We have um, we we partner scientists with teachers to to do this. Um, and so there there are a lot of deficiencies in that sense in Puerto Rico. But that is something that we are, are trying to address through some of our mm-hmm. programs.
0: Yeah, and uh, a bit like Joanna, I have great admiration for. Any, any projects like that in, in countries where uh, maybe the, the, the race is starting from, you know, from a little, a little bit back compared to, uh, to other places. And, uh, and, you know, kudos for being on the ground and trying to get the children to learn, to be uh, more informed citizens, and then eventually to have to be more able to be skeptic about uh, wrongful information, etc. When, when the time comes. And now for a short message. If you're preparing to launch your podcast you may be asking yourself what hosting platform to use. I launched Papa PhD on Blueberry because I wanted a professional service that would interface with my WordPress website, that would robustly broadcast Papa PhD to all platforms, and that would allow me to grow my podcast in years to come. If you're starting a serious podcast project, do consider one of the first podcasting hosts out there offering state-of-the-art services, including IAB Certified Statistics. ...based on years of experience in the podcasting space. So, go to papaphd.com forward slash blueberry... ...that is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y... ...or use the promo code Blue in one word... ...on the Blueberry website... ...to unlock a one-month free trial of the platform. And now, back to the roundtable. Now, Monica mentioned something before, which is the trust... ...that it's important for the scientific community to establish trust in the public and uh there there may be and if you go on the streets you you may find people who are very skeptical who, who find again, these are people f- that speak a strange language and that I do not trust. Uh, and uh, I was going to ask Adriana uh, what uh, her ideas would be in terms of uh, what she's seen that works or in in terms of yeah, what she's seen that works for the scientific community to gain the trust of. Uh, of the public, and maybe also of of the the governing bodies. What can scientists do to gain this trust and and start addressing the the community from a place of, of not only respect and empathy, but trust also?
3: Yeah, I think, so as I mentioned before, I think the definition of being a scientist has changed in these times in terms of it's not just... You're not just a scientific expert but you're just somebody who can translate that outside of your institution to the public and to policymakers to inform them of the importance of the research that happens in institutions but also it's sort of a dual um uh dual system in that you are sort of the expert who is informing the policymakers and um, at the same time, they obviously have um, the ability to make decisions based on what the constituents are saying. Um, so it is, um, I think, the way to g- gain credibility, obviously, with policymakers specifically, would be to um, have evidence-based um, research, but also think about personal stories. So a lot of times that resonates better with them. Um, and um, thinking about the, um, I think the advocacy that they have sort of goes both ways. So the empathy and what you were saying in terms of, we have to understand sort of what policymakers deal with on a daily basis and where this advocacy, advocacy will fit in. But at the same time, uh, they have to be empathetic to the constituents who are coming to them with these, these issues, right? Um, and I think, as for universities specifically, you know, they they support um, in terms of funding and you know bills and supplements that will obviously have gone into the COVID research. Um, but at the same time, um, thinking about sort of this this dual system that you're. Researchers are informing policymakers, but they also they also have to listen to the constituents, which is going to inform what they're doing. So it's really important to think about, as we said, the empathy and sort of the dual nature of this.
0: Just before going to uh, Adriana, a section that has more to do with what you do, there's uh, one or two other questions that I'd like to throw on the table. I had thought this one for Joana still to do with the role of scientists. Joanna, in your opinion, should all researchers be science communicators? And uh, on the flip side, should all science communicators be researchers?
2: What I think, I think all scientists should be trained in science communication because, uh, because it's good not only for them to be trained in communicating their work for other people because they will have to, but also because it makes them better scientists. We have data to support that, that when scientists are trained into being better communicators, they also become better scientists. On the other side, not all scientists should be obliged to do the same type of science communication activities. I think all of them should do some kind of activities, but each of them has to find their space. Some of them will be good at giving talks. Others will be good at writing. Some will be good with dealing with children. Some will be good with teenagers. Some will be good with hands-on. There are so many things you can do in science communication. The possibilities are never-ending. So in that regard, I think all scientists should. If you need to have a scientific background to be a science communicator, well, we've been discussing this for ages uh, everywhere. What I think, what I feel from my experience, it helps if you have a scientific background. Because you have been yourself personally through the process of building knowledge, of creating knowledge of the writing of the papers, of writing uh, uh, grants, and the frustration of the everyday work of a scientist, because we many times we say science is woohoo," but science many times is pooh you know so yeah dealing with that you know what you are actually communicating and that's something i feel lacks in some people that haven't gone through the process that being said i know a lot of incredibly talented science communicators that don't have phd's so it's not mandatory it's not mandatory you need a mixture of qualities from what i've been looking in the world around me is a mixture of qualities and you have to be sharp and you have to be enthusiastic and you have to be organized and if you have a scientific background it helps Mm -hmm. that's what i feel
0: yeah in my interactions with people i have interviewed one thing for sure that i feel that is clear and, and aligns with what you're saying is that when you have a scientific background and you're interviewing a researcher there's an understanding of a lot of things that are happening behind the the curtains that because you were there that, you know, for sure.
2: Yeah. I like to add that when I started doing science communication in a research institute, it helped bringing researchers on my side because when I was presented, people said, ah, she's here. She wants to do some reporting on your lab. And they're like, hmm, who are you? And I said, I have a PhD. And they're like, okay, you're one of us. So it creates empathy with scientists, okay? So it helps in that regard. They, they, it's easier to create empathy with scientists, which is also important, not just creating empathy with the other side of the audiences, because we need to bring in many, many scientists with us. So we really need to get them.
0: For sure. And, but I, I'm sure that there's a lot of, uh, and there are a lot of very good uh, research journalists who work mainly on science and who have accrued a host of knowledge from years and years of working in the domain who are very good science communicators, for sure. But I, I agree, it helps. It helps. Now, another question is around you, have you felt that scientists feel a moral responsibility to intervene and to dispel fake news and erroneous information around them? And you yourselves now you don't go in an elevator with anyone these days but uh you know in the past uh, in an elevator conversation you hear someone saying something that's uh, not quite right do you do you think scientists that you know and yourself feel this need to set things right uh, in terms of scientific information in the wild let's say
2: well yes and no yeah it depends because I've had a couple of dinner uh, parties ruined because of this, because sometimes anti-vaxxers or homeopaths want to pick a fight because they know I'm from science and they're like, let's discuss. And then it doesn't create a very good environment if you're discussing how bogus it is, whatever it is they are discussing. So up to a point, socially, it can be problematic. And there's another thing why we need the proximity and the empathy because the anti-vaxxers and, and the fake news in general, they, they, they juggle with people's emotions and with people's basic fears. And everybody, not everybody knows everything. And it's really, really hard to, to make people change their minds. It's easier to help them build a good idea on something, but it's super hard to change their minds. So, uh, yeah.
3: Yes and no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Does anyone else want to
1: weigh in? Adriana, do you want to go?
3: Yeah, so from sort of the university perspective and also from my perspective, because I'm a former urban scientist who's transitioned into policy, so I sort of have both of these. Um, I do think that it's important, as you guys have already said, to, to teach scientists how to communicate and be credible in, in society and thinking about. Um, I think, I don't know about, well, fake news specifically, obviously, we're trained to find reputable sources and, you know, tell people, okay, go here, don't go to this website. I think we're we're trained in that. Um, but in terms of kind of making that credible to the public, um, I heard this one thing, oh, I took this uh, class with science communication a couple of years ago from ASBMB, and they said that the public is more likely to trust um, when their friend says something as when they're a sci- when, as when a scientist says something because they already know I trust this person, and you know. So there is. So we need to create I think that level of um, sort of or closeness or credibility to say that you're you know you're just talking to them like another person. You're not like um, the science like uh, you, I mean this has been reiterated multiple times that you're not just you know high on your pedestal on the scientist and talking to you and you don't know what you're saying there are ways to connect and find sort of what the common ground is with the public right in that sense so um i think and i think there is a community engagement here too especially if coming again from the university community in terms of scientists getting out there more talking to people like things like you know beer with a scientist that sort of thing Uh, With COVID also, there have been um, students from campuses doing sort of a lot of things in the community. Um, And um, so I think, yeah, it's really important to continue this engagement with outside groups as well.
1: Yeah, I will add, there is a really fantastic article that Liz Neely from the Story Collider wrote uh, for The Atlantic. It's titled "How to Talk About the Coronavirus." And in it, um, Liz is uh, an incredible science communication researcher and and practitioner, and she offers like four tips to help people engage with particularly scientists, engage with others around the coronavirus. but I think her advice is relevant. When you're correcting misinformation or you're addressing misinformation, um, you know, I think scientists, from my experience, it, it drives scientists insane to see misinformation because, you know, we're, we're data driven or facts driven. It's, it's the way that we are, are trained. And so because of that, we approach the world in that, you know, fact based manner And we often forget not everyone approaches the world with those same values. So it's very important that we remember that. You know, while you might prioritize facts, the reality is that facts alone don't make a difference for most people. For scientists, they may. But for most people, it doesn't make a difference. And so if you're trying to correct or address misinformation, just throwing facts at people, not going to work. Saying to someone, you're wrong, I'm right. Not going to work. Not a great way to start a conversation. And so from, from Lisa's um, article, I think one of the, the pieces of advice um, or two of the pieces of advice that really resonate with me and with what we're talking about is you have to pick your battles. Um, you know, sometimes you will be in a position to address misinformation with whoever it is that you're, you're engaging with. Um, and, and so if you are in that position, sure, do that, but say that, you know, you're talking to someone to, uh, Joanna's example, if you're talking to an anti-vaxxer who's already digged their heels and say like, it doesn't matter what you say. I, I don't believe you, you know, these are my beliefs on vaccines, but maybe that's a battle you shouldn't fight. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that it's not always our place, to address misinformation and you might not always be the right messenger to do so. Um, And, and the other thing is, you know, starting where you are, you know, start with what you have and and do what you can, you know, start where you are. Um, And so as, as Adriana was, was mentioning, you know, if you're amongst the group of friends, like talk to them as a friend, like talk to them as somebody that they might trust Um, you know, like when I talk to my family, like, you know, I have like chats, like WhatsApp chats with friends and family, they're constantly sending me videos and posts and whatever it is about coronavirus. And, you know, some of them contain misinformation. And so what I've done is I've, I know that they trust me. I know that they love me. And so from that place of trust and love, I talk to them and I say, you know, I know that you might be sharing this because you care about me and you're worried about this issue. I wanted to let you know there are, you know, there's some things in that video, for example, that are wrong. Here are the things that are wrong. Here are the things that are write instead or here are the steps that you can take if you're concerned about this particular thing um, and so i would encourage people to to go and read that article because i think it offers really great advice that applies beyond this pandemic
0: mm-hmm. I, I will uh, share it whenever i post and i take care of the the video for sure and i'm going to read it because i think it makes interesting points from what you're saying thank you for being a listener of the show next week On part 3 of the PSICOM special, and the last episode of season 1 of Papa PhD, we will dive into the policy side of things and talk in more detail about how you, as a scientist, can have a say on the future of science policy, and about what the Covid crisis has brought on, on that side of things so far. So be sure to tune in! I just want to take a moment to let you know that you can help me end the show by leaving a star rating and a comment on your podcasting app. If you want to go a step further, go to patreon.com/pappaphd now and become a supporter. For the equivalent of a coffee per month, you'll be helping me immensely with the recurring costs of hosting and producing the show. Again, thank you for being a true fan. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to PapaPhD.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.